Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm regular blogger, Dr. Sam Moxon, and today I'm joined by Matthias Alder from Gain Therapeutics. So hi, Matthias. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, Sam, and thanks for having me. Real pleasure. So how are you feeling today? You good? I'm, I'm good. Uh, actually, just recovering from COVID. You know, it's like, I guess these days are something normal, but it, it, it's all Yeah, good. it seems, yeah. It seems quite go. common at the moment. Yeah, I lost my voice last week, and I'm not sure what, what caused that. I had some sort of throat wow. thing as well, so it's just coming back. Right. So I think we should start by introductions and tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Gain Therapeutics as well, so that listeners know how we're going to frame this discussion. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and thanks for having having me here. And I'm happy, really pleased to be able to um, tell the audience, your audience, a, a bit about Gain Therapeutics and the important work we're doing at the company. Uh, so Gain is is a is a, a computational uh, drug discovery company, um, and I'm I've um, I've been the CEO for the company of the company for the last uh, six plus months. I've been with the company for about eighteen months, um, and have been in the biotech and pharma industry uh, for essentially the entirety of my career um, since uh, almost 30 years ago started out in one of the big pharma companies in Switzerland. Um, I was actually originally uh, a lawyer by training, so I'm not a scientist. Um, started out in the, in the legal field, but I've always worked with in the pharma and the biotech industry and working with, with many companies and one of the things I've learned is to take complex scientific concepts and translate them into more uh, simple ways to for for normal regular people to to understand. And I hope I can. While it might not be necessary for this particular audience, I think it's always simplicity is always a, is is always a good thing. And the greatest ideas are often just the, the simplest ideas, and that's what we here have here again with our program where we're focusing on a genetically defined subpopulation of uh, Parkinson's disease patients um, and with a mechanism of action that is uh, actually potential disease modifying and can stop the progression of the disease. So an incredibly powerful uh, mechanism, incredibly exciting opportunity. And the exciting part is that we have taken this all the way from the discovery where we used our computational tools to find the molecule uh, all the way through preclinical pre development and are now ready to take this into the clinic in the middle of this year. That's really exciting. I want to go into a bit more detail on that a little bit later on. But I think we should start by talking about the, sort of the technology platform and how it works. So is, is it called, is it CTX, S-E-E-T-X? Is that the, right. the technology? So how, how does that actually work? How does that help you find therapeutic targets for diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease? Right. Thank you. Yeah, so CTX is a, is a, a physics and structure-based uh, discovery platform. I, I know that AI is sort of the, the big word today, right? Artificial intelligence, um, uh, machine learning and all that. And that always requires a lot of pre-existing data to teach a computer system to do a, a program to, to do what it needs to do. That is different from what we're doing at, at GAIN, which is a, a physics and structure-based approach. And so in order to discover new molecules, what we're doing with the platform is find novel, never seen before binding sites on the surface of proteins 
and then find small molecules that bind onto those binding sites and have a therapeutic effect. Um, it's, it's a structure-based approach in that we, the only thing we need is the protein structure. Um, and these days, and we are using AI in that context in that we can use things like AlphaFold that can generate a 3D structure from a 1D oligo sequence in, in no time. And these, these types of predicted structures from AI-based tools we can use to run our platform and then, then use that structure to uh, discover new binding sites and small molecules that bind. And so do you work with, with other companies or universities? What sort of people do you work with as part of these kind of projects? These are just actually, so that we are working indirectly or I guess with, with a university in that the, um, uh, the, the platform was developed at the University of Barcelona. Um, and our chief technology officer who is with the company today was actually the person who originally developed the initial concept and, and software to run this kind of a modeling exercise. And obviously over the years has continued to refine that. And so we're using that platform that was developed at the University of Barcelona now at GAIN. It's exclusively licensed to us as a company. And so we are using that both for ourselves to develop new programs, development programs in different therapeutic areas. We're also using that in collaboration with partners in, in the industry, uh, you know, small biotech companies, large pharma companies that, that have an interest in accelerating drug discovery uh, as we can enable with our tool. So it's, it's quite a collaborative effort, which, which, is, which is good to hear. So I took a look at the company website earlier, and it seems like you've got a lot of different sort of uh, candidates for different therapeutic areas and clinical trials. It's not just dementia. There was stuff with um, cancer and other, and other. But we're going to dial into into the dementia side of things today. And it seems that the one that's the most advanced is for Parkinson's disease, and it's based on a specific genetic mutation that that, that leads to the most drastic cognitive decline. Is that correct? Uh, correct. So the the focus of our lead program is uh, GBA one Parkinson's disease, and these are Parkinson's disease patients who get the disease because they have a mutation of the GBA1 gene. And because of that uh, genetic mutation, uh, that gene expresses a misfolded enzyme, G-case. And what we're doing with our small, and, and that G-case, because it's misfolded, it gets retained and ultimately degraded in the cell and doesn't actually get, is not able to perform its, its role. Um, and what we're doing is we're restoring enzyme function with our small molecule by binding to that GKS enzyme, restoring function. And as a result, we see the, the beneficial effects of having essentially restoring a healthy cell. And the re reason why there is that connection to dementia is what you refer to is that the GBA1 uh, Parkinson's patients, these are have the more severe form of the disease. Uh, they get that it's an early onset of the disease in these patients so that they get it earlier in their lives. It's a faster progressing disease and the disease is early on already associated with uh, cognitive decline, which typically in idiopathic normal, Parkinson, normal Parkinson's patients, you only see towards the back end of, back end of, of the disease progression. In, in these GBA1 uh, Parkinson's patients that happens as, as, the, as the disease progresses. And so the ability to, with our molecule, to get to these patients early and stop the disease progression 
has a beneficial effect and obviously not just on the behavioral deficit, maintaining their behavioral function, their locomotion functions, but also stopping that cognitive decline. I think that's really important as well because like most neurodegenerative disorders with, with something like Parkinson's, it is a case of trying to stop it as early as possible. I guess reversal is always a hard pitch because you know even if you can somehow engineer new neural networks, have you lost what was in the old ones? But on, on that topic, is there then also potential to use something like this in trying to treat Alzheimer's disease early as well? Because the problem with Alzheimer's disease is usually after diagnosis, it's it's almost too late. So yeah. do we need do we need the development of better early diagnostics before we can start looking at therapies like this, or can this be something that can be used now to help patients? Well, um, I think he better diagnostics are always helpful. And in fact, um, we just recently on the Parkinson's side had a very significant breakthrough with the Michael J. Fox Foundation that sponsored the program to identify um, diagnostic tests. And this is now a test based on alpha-synuclein, which is one of the hallmarks of uh, Parkinson's disease. And that allows, with that diagnostic test, they have found made the correlation able to identify patients very early on, even before they start to exhibit symptoms. Um, and that's, that is huge, right? And that's exactly where the field needs to move and where therapies that we are developing that actually maintains, you know, that, 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 that the healthy cells or restores healthy cells uh, is, is, is key, right? As you said, once, the neuronal cells have been uh, impaired and, 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 and died off, it's really hard to come back from that. So the idea is again, to get to these patients as early as possible, maintaining them at a very high level of cognition and, and locomotion function, uh, as opposed to seeing that continued slide into, into that, the, the, the severe phase of the disease. So what stage are you at the moment then in terms of the Parkinson's disease therapy, in you know, clinical pipeline? How far progressed are you? Are you into trials yet or are you still in, in preclinical? We, we are actually, and that's for us as a company, a very exciting stage. We're just finishing up the preclinical uh, development. So we finished up the, the finals of animal tox studies that we needed to complete and are ready to take this program into the clinic in the middle of this year. So we're just about to make that transition into a clinical stage company, which for, if you're in biotech, right, that, that's a that's a big, big step forward. And uh, we're really excited to, to to be able to accomplish that with this lead program. It means you've sort of gone be white, way beyond proof of concept and it's starting to look like you actually have something viable at that point, which, so so, so what, what country will you be doing the, 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 the trials and clinical evaluation in? Yeah. So the, the first um, study is a phase one study and because it's in, in focused on Parkinson's disease, um, it has to be a healthy volunteer study. So I, I used to work in oncology companies where you can go directly into patients in phase one. Unfortunately, in neurodegenerative diseases, that's not possible. And so we're looking at uh, first a phase one study in healthy volunteers, establishing the safety profile in humans, and then take that into uh, the next phase into patients in a phase 1b and phase 2 study to establish the actual effect in, in, in humans. We've shown the effect in animals very well, multiple animal models, multiple you know approaches and so forth, and it, it, it works in very consistent results across all of the experiments we've done. The proof will be in the pudding once, we, once we're in, in humans.
So I want to ask a slightly different question now. So I'm obviously a university academic, but I'm, I'm also now exploring the other side of the coin, looking at commercialization and industrial biotech and that kind of thing. Approaching this from the angle of, of a biotech company like yourself, how do you think the research focus and pipeline differs to academia? Is it more easy to focus on that clinical product and trying to get it to market because that is your primary goal and it's not necessarily papers and grants, although you need funding? Do you find that it's easy to have that focus on, on the clinic by coming at this from an industrial angle? I, I think uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't think you, it, I wouldn't, the way I think about it, is it, it requires uh, both academia and, and industry to really work together. And they have different roles um, in, in, in the space. And that continues even during clinical development, right? You have uh, in the investigator initiated studies. So, um, you know, even doctors in, in so clinical centers, right, who look at uh, a product in slightly different ways and think we could try it out in these patients, for example, right? And then that something as a company would probably not want to invest money in because it's experimental and speculative. Um, but that could contribute if it if it works. So it could be really helpful. And the same is true for for the research leading up to one finding a molecule and then then, then taking it in, into into the clinic. Um, it, it takes that initial fundamental research that enables a lot of the breakthroughs that ultimately then translate into a, a product that ultimately leads to a, a, a therapy that can be used for patients. And so it, it requires everybody pulling together and 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 make and and contributing to ultimately this to to that to that success and a lot of the things that we're now taking for granted as knowledge that everyone knows based on which we're developing our lead lead product that was developed in you know in in a in an academic setting to create that basic knowledge that allows us to actually draw the conclusions that allows us then to develop to find the product and develop it it's interesting. One of the things that I've learned as part of exploring this this sort of commercialization element is sometimes your main application for an idea isn't the thing that you thought it was going to be. So when when you started or when when Gain started, was was Parkinson's disease the main target, or is this something that's developed along the way? That was a very interesting question because it, that is, is, is what happened. Um, so the company originally started out based on the technology platform, that discovery platform that works really across any therapeutic area. So initially the, the company had to, the first choice was, okay, what are we going to do with this platform? Incredibly powerful, incredibly fast, incredibly versatile. But as a small biotech company starting out, you have to focus your efforts on one partic particular area. And so the company initially actually focused on lysosomal storage disorders and specifically on restoring, uh, uh, enhancing enzyme function. That's where CTIX, the name comes from, right? Side directed enzyme enhancement. That was the or origin of the company, the initial focus. Um, but because it was a biotech company dependent on, you know, uh, funding from, from investors, we were trying to figure out how can we create the most options for us as a company going forward. And so one of the things in terms of looking at within the lysosomal storage disorders that we initially focused on is 
what what which which ones are are we actually going to do and so initially for this what is now the the, the gba1 parkinson's program we actually started out looking at crochet disease which is a rare childhood disease uh, where it's also caused by that same genetic mutation of the gba1 gene but at that time already thinking well that might have broader applications and so as we were developing the product, starting first in the rare disease, we now have the opportunity to actually expand it into a much broader application here. So almost like the, the you know, if the Parkinson's disease therapy gets through clinical trials, then it's, I guess it's a good case study for a technology platform like yours, where you've used it to first find the therapeutic target and then test it preclinically and then move it through clinical trials and hopefully into clinic. What have been the, what have been the biggest challenges to that? Or has it, been, you know, has it been quite a smooth process or has it been, has it come with difficulties? You've been in research, you know, <laughs> it's not difficulties. It's, but it's just, you never, you, you know, you get unexpected results, right? That's just part of part of the nature of, of the of the beast of the field that we're working in um, and the the, the 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 trick is really to make the best of of the results that you have that you get and figure out how you can apply those for the next steps that you need to take forward so so no it's it's never it's it's never just straightforward from from start to finish right and first with our platform we find a molecule then you need to find optimize the molecule so it actually becomes it penetrates the blood-brain barrier because we're trying to affect CNS diseases. Um, and then you need to optimize it along various parameters to avoid, you know, toxicities and things like that and make it more bioavailable. So there is always a, a, a hurdle that you get to that you need to overcome. Um, but it's, 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 in that sense, it's been normal course of, of, of business so because that's what you would expect in any any clinical uh, any, any development program really so let's let's be on the, on the side of optimism say you get through clinical trials and you get approval yeah. there, there'll be clinicians listening to this podcast who perhaps work with with parkinson's patients and are interested and want to know if if this ends up in the clinic when and how would it be administered to patients so in terms of, you know, delivery method, but also stage of, of disease. Right. And I think one of the things we have looked at and looking at sort of thinking about, right, sort of the bumps and, and, and hurdles and things to address is, is exactly that, anticipating that ultimately the therapy that we're developing needs to be convenient for patients in order to make sure that they actually take it and, and, and adhere to the therapy. And so we have focused on the development of a of, of of a formulation it's it's a small molecule so it can be administered orally um and uh it, it's so it's an oral administration uh, the initial actually the phase one study is going to be in a liquid formulation but we're working actually on creating a capsule uh, that then can be easily taken by by patients as well so there is there it is a, an oral formulation that we'll be having that we can make available to patients um, and uh, in terms of frequency, right, that's the other thing and uh, that, that people are looking at. So it's either going to be a once a day or twice a day, you know, morning and evening type of um, uh, capsule that people that, that patients would have to take. Um, but 
all of that will will now work through as we're going actually into humans in the clinic and actually figuring out the most convenient way, way for these patients. Because I think if you can have it as like a once a day or twice a day, I think that that's already an improvement for patients because I've spoken to a few Parkinson's patients in the past through work. And one of the complaints they have about their medicine is it works better on some days than others. And because of the severity of the symptoms and the they have to almost try and tweak the dose up and down depending on severity. And it's hard to, to really get into a sort of a, a routine with it. Whereas if there's a, a thing that they can take once a day that's going to control the symptoms, that's a, that's a huge improvement for the patients. So that, that, that's, that's a great benefit. Part of it, you sort of touched on it, actually alluded to it, is right now what, what, what is available for Parkinson's patients is symptomatic treatments. So you, you try to treat the symptoms as opposed to the, the underlying cause of the disease. Um, the symptoms are one thing. Uh, the cause of the disease is the, the death of dopaminergic neurons and being able to intervene in, 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 with these patients early on before that uh, they've lost uh, too many of their, their dopaminergic neurons, that's the trick. And then you have that convenient once or twice a day uh, administration and that really should help smooth that out and stabilize these patients early on before they have these big swings and severe, uh, uh, you know, a severe impact of, of, of the, the, the symptoms because we're able to get to these patients early on before those severe symptoms develop. So uh, as a biologist, I want to ask then, does it, does it stop the accumulation of toxic synuclein? Is that how it stops the death, the death of the cells? Uh, yes. So what it does, so the G-case enzyme that we are targeting with our small molecule, it, the job of, of, of G-case is to go into the lysosome, the waste bin of the cells. Sorry if I talk too, too simplistically here for the audience. I was going to say we have a very broad audience. Some people, not everyone is a biologist. Some people are care workers. Some people are nurses. Some people, right. you know, we have a really broad... So, so simplifying it means everyone is on board. Awesome. Thank you. So, so what the, 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 that enzyme does is it needs to go into the lysosome, the waste bin of the cell and there remove the cell waste, uh, the substrate, uh, and create sort of a healthy lysosome, a, a clean waste bin. Um, and if the, the, if the enzyme doesn't work, there, it causes, it doesn't get to the, to the lysosome. There's a buildup of these materials that ultimately the waste bin overflows and, and the cell dies. And what we're doing with our molecule is restoring the function of that GKS enzyme. It gets to the lysosome, it does its job. And as a result, you have a, a clean waste bin, a healthy lysosome, which then causes the cell to be healthy and, and survive compared to not, right? Um, and so we see that we have seen that uh, in terms of the the effects that we have shown preclinically, both in cell-based uh, patient-derived cells, but also in animal models, is that we have exactly that effect. So we see enzyme levels going up. We see more enzyme going into the lysosome. We see the depletion of the toxic material. We see the depletion of alpha-synuclein. Um, we see a reduction of inflammatory markers in the brains of, 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 of the animals. Um, and, and we see an improvement in locomotion. So you're essentially seeing all the effects. Failed to mention, we see improved survival of dopaminergic neurons 
and an increase in dopamine production. So essentially hitting every step of the way in terms of the mechanism that we need to achieve. And that's why we're really super excited and, and optimistic about the, 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 the program and uh, about the effects that we're going to see in, in humans. It's like kickstarting a really positive chain reaction, essentially. That's really exciting. So, so as as CEO, then, so what's what what does your average day look like? You know, what what role do you play in getting this moving forwards? A lot of it is just team leading, um, and that is you know at, at different levels. Every if you're working with with groups of people, you need to bring them together and get everybody focused on the things that need to be achieved. Um, and that's essentially what you had the, the job you have to do as, as a CEO, at least internally within the company. Um, and so I'm working with my management team to make sure that we're all focused on the right things and, and anticipating, you know, hurdles and trying working on, on solutions before problems occur so that we're always prepared and, and able to, to move things forward smoothly. But the other job as a CEO is, is a lot of interactions with external stakeholders. So shareholders, investors, um, just the general public, right? Patients um, to, to tell the story and just telling our audience here, because I think it's a very strong and powerful story to tell that that should be the cause of great optimism for, for patients and just getting that out there. And here there's, 8,000 or so public biotech companies and everybody has a story to tell. So it's a matter of just being focused and being out there and, and telling that, that exciting opportunity that, that opportunity that we have here again is to, to make sure people are aware of it and appreciate it. And I think it's sort of the last segment of this. I want to talk a little bit about that sort of commercial side of things because it's something that we don't often talk about. And I think it's an interesting avenue to go down because I think we're starting to notice more and more people now leaving academia to go into industry, partly because of more job security and that kind of thing. And it's it's interesting to see, you know, a company like yours that's that's making the progress that they are. And so I, I want to know, you, you will meet with academics, you'll meet with clinicians, you'll meet with stakeholders. They'll all want different things from you in terms of output. So how do you balance getting the, you know, the best result for the patients while also keeping the stakeholders happy you know you have to ensure returns and investments and that kind of thing or does the therapy like this essentially pay for itself once it gets through to clinical trials because it is you know a first of its kind uh, ultimately i think we all want the same thing right if you're if you're in a researcher in in a biotech company if you're you know, a manager, CEO in a biotech company, if you're an investor in a biotech company, if you're a clinician working with a biotech company or looking at programs, ultimately, that's the great thing about the industry that we're in. We want to ultimately have a great outcome and a product that can, that actually helps patients in, in a very meaningful way. And, and I think that that creates just an inherent alignment of all these tactically maybe deferring interests, but ultimately that the goal is to bring an impactful therapy to, to patients. And if, we refer, if we're succeeding in that, everybody wins. And that ultimately is the, the, the main message that we always come back with, right? And people have, may have short-term interests um, that, that need to be addressed and talked through, but ultimately it's, it's all about the long-term goal that we have here. And that's really that's really all all there is to it. And and then 
you know, you just bring it all together. And that's part of, again, the job of the CEO is like, okay, taking all these things and packaging it and making sure everybody stays aligned and focused. And that's what we do. And I think another thing people might want to know as well, if they are interested in going down that route of commercialization, I had this misconception that you had to have been through clinical trials before you can spin out as a company, but actually it's not the case. And uh, what I've been told is often the, the, the way you get enough money to go through the clinical trials is to spin out. That gives you access to the funds. Right. How, how, do you, how do you keep stakeholders happy through that process? Because in, in, in reality, the, the revenue from a product comes once it's been through clinical trials. So just right. from a practical aspect, how do you keep those stakeholders interested? Is it through showing them the constant progress or as things progress, do they start to take a piece of the property or, you know, how, how, do, you keep, how do you balance those, those kinds of uh, individuals? Well, I think ultimately it is uh, two observations. One, uh, it takes a lot of capital to develop a drug. Um, and so trying to do that in, in a more academic setting, I think is, is inherently challenging because if you're relying on, on especially on grants, it's, it's really hard to come by uh, the money that it takes ultimately to, to develop a drug. And so typically the, the best, the, the most successful approach to secure the money is to actually go, go, go spin that out into a company um and then once you you it's in in, in a company you have shareholders right and, and investors and the the way to keep them happy and interested is to just progress the program and execute and, and there's risk right there is there is there is you know there is nothing is guaranteed in in drug develop drug discovery drug development um, but showing that progress is ultimately what keeps them happy. And if you have that necessary you know, piece of luck that, that is always required uh, to be successful, um, just executing and focusing on, on, on progressing the program and not get diluted and distracted, I think is, is, is key. I guess the more you bring positive data, the more investors will see that as being de-risked further and further and exactly. further. Uh, right. To the point where once you once you get into clinical trials, it's seen as a much safer prospect, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's risk throughout, right? And there's companies who take a product all the way through phase three and then don't get approved. But that's you know, the the, the at every step of the way, and in, in in some ways, it's actually helpful to have a quite a highly regulated development process because you can always point to the next step. And once you have achieved that, obviously you've delivered and then you point to the next step and the next step um, as you're, you know, engaging with, with shareholders and investors, the more boxes and steps you take and, and complete along the way, the greater the confidence. And I think that's, that's the reality of, of drug development these days. Okay. So before we come back to the Parkinson's therapy itself to, to finish, I, well, I just also want to ask if there's anybody listening to this who's interested in looking at going down a more industrial commercial avenue uh, and particularly someone who's thinking, I've got an idea here. This could, this could form actually something viable and I want to know how to spin out, but I don't know where to start. Have you got any advice for somebody like that about the, the kind of conversations you should be looking to have? Obviously this is not, we're not the first company to be, to have been created and there's, there's a lot of success stories and failures from which uh, people can learn. And if you're thinking about spinning out from, from an academic setting into a company, there is, I can guarantee you that there's, there's many 
predecessors examples in in that academic organization who, who have done that before and so it, it's a, a lot of it is about really reaching out and 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 creating and having the conversations and, and having establishing that network of people who have done it before who then every conversation leads to something else right first you need to sort of figure out is what i have already enough in terms of the, the stage that the type of data that i have the, the things i'm thinking about what the commercial value ultimately is is that enough to create a company and once that has been sort of sussed out and then sort of developed as, as, as a concept then starting to read to connect with potential funding sources right venture capitalists um, and, and there's a lot of connections that as every conversation leads will lead to another conversation and ultimately it all comes together into a into a successful spin out and so the i think the the the, the the, the starting point is is the will and the interest in taking something and spinning it out and then start working it um, and, and and it's a lot of it is and I, I you know there's, it's not it's not everybody's um, nature to be networking and reaching out and talking um, but that that's I think the, one of the key ingredients is really building out the network of, of contacts that you can reach to to really make it a successful uh, process uh, for for spinning out the company from an academic uh, group yeah the more conversations the better so I, I've, I've got i've got two questions to, to finish with then the first one is obviously in, you know if i said where do you want to be in five years the first thing you would say is you want this to be on in clinics but so i think the better question is what's next after this what's the next therapy the next big thing that you've got coming through that you're excited about the next thing for us as a company is other than progressing our lead program is really to to what we're what we've started to focus on is, is is oncology which is an interesting because of the the nature of the platform which is entirely agnostic as to therapeutic area um it, our our interest and our focus and our ability is to develop these these binders that are allosteric binders so we're by we're, we're able to find allosteric binding sites on the protein surface. That's essentially any place on the protein that's involved in the disease that is not the known active binding site of that protein. And having that ability allows us out of the gate to create very differentiated therapies. And so from our perspective in oncology, there's a lot of pre-established models that we can quickly run through and, and test our molecules and see if they work. And creating that broadening of the application of the platform is is going to be important the other is to further characterize our lead program and going back to to the core interest of 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 the audience here in terms of dementia research is to further develop and characterize uh, our lead product uh, that we're initially developing in gba1 parkinson's disease in other neurodegenerative diseases so we just actually had a a poster at uh, ADPD, the conference um, uh, on Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's research, where we've shown that um, our molecule also impacts um, amyloid beta and phosphorylated. So we have a path because it's a very fundamental mechanism of action with, with uh, restoring GK's function that translates into 
other indications including Alzheimer's disease and further exploring that and develop, you know, continuing to develop the, the program preclinically uh, in other indications, including Alzheimer's will be a key focus for us going forward. This is, this is all really exciting to hear. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people listening who are excited by this. Um, I wrote a blog last year called, are we entering the golden age of dementia research? And I think stuff like this reassures me that, that, that yes, we are, things are getting closer to the clinic. So for anybody who's listening to this who is interested and excited and wants to track your progress, how can they keep up to date on how things are going, not just with the trial, but with you know the, the research in general at, at your company? Because we're a public company, our interest is to be very public with our progress. Um, and so we provide at least quarterly updates uh, on the, the corporate progress. We also come out with uh, press releases and data announcements um, every all along we're going to have another one coming out in august where we're going to have exciting data coming out so there is there is a way to sign up actually on our website for for getting updates on the company on an automatic basis whenever we have some news coming out and then that way you can keep tabs on tabs on on what we're doing here um, at, at gain and we look forward to seeing your you reaching out to us um, at gain and so what we'll do is we'll put the, the link to the website in, in the show notes so people can follow that and they can subscribe to the updates. Well, uh, Matthias, thank you for joining us. It's been a really fascinating discussion, really exciting to hear what you, what you guys are up to. So, so thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation here as well. And we hope you guys enjoyed listening as well. So please do tell us on YouTube, on Twitter, or whatever social media platform you want to use. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all very soon. The Dementia Researcher podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association, and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review, and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk